Now, continuing, please, in the book of the Revelation. The book of the Revelation, and it will be chapter 13 still. We're going to look, Revelation 13, continuing to look at this picture book. Because that's what Revelation is. It's a picture book. And we saw in Revelation 13 the picture of a beast, the beast rising out of the sea. And we saw that the picture gave us a tremendous lesson. It was a graphic illustration of, really, the devil himself. The devil in all his cruelty. The devil unvarnished was what we said. Now, in in chapter 13 and verse 11... To the end, we've got another picture. And it's again another beast, and he comes out of the earth. He rises up from amongst men, and he is another one of Satan's men. And he gives us a different picture now, because he shows us another way in which he works. There's a contrast and yet a tremendous similarity. Because what we're actually getting taught here, as we're looking at these picture pictures, is we're seeing how... Satan attacks God's people, and he does do that. He never stops doing that. Those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, he's out always to destroy them. He hates to see the Christian in the world because the Christian is there shining light in his great darkness and dispelling the awful evil that he wants to bring to pass. Now, two pictures, right? First beast, second beast. They contrast, and yet there's such incredible similarities. Pictures of how Satan works. Now, in the first one, as a background, I did read to you that verse in Second Peter, where it says, beware, let me find it for you. It's First Peter in chapter 5, where it says, Be sober and be vigilant, in verse 8, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Now, that was the picture we got, the ferocity, the destruction of the devil, the hate, the lion that's on the loose, that wants to devour us in our faith and overwhelm us with fear and destroy us in our witness. Now, this time there's another mention, and it's in 2 Corinthians 11. That mention was a beautiful description of what was seen in the first picture of the first beast. Now, in 2 Corinthians 11, it's slightly different. It says in verse 13, there's false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, you know, making them look as though they're wonderful people. But don't be surprised, he says, there's no marvel. Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He makes himself to look what he he is not. He does it so well that you could mistake him for the real thing. So he says it's no great thing that his ministers, the people that he's using to do his work, also transformed into ministers of righteousness. 
whose end shall be according to their works. In other words, don't be surprised if people who you really thought were doing good, people wherever they are, in places of power, in places of influence, you think, well, they're doing something good for the world and in the world, but in actual fact, they are hiding, they are hiding behind their external appearance. And all the while in the shadows, they're working for the destruction of all that is good and for the overwhelming of the people of God. And what they're doing is working to further the cause of the enemy. It's like living in a country, you know, and you, you, you read story after story, spy stories, don't you, you know? People in high places that are working for the good of the country and passing on all the information to the enemy so that the people can actually be enslaved and destroyed. Now that's how Satan is working and that's how he does work. And that's what we've got brought to us in the two pictures in Revelation chapter 13. Clear illustrations of the devil, the lion, and now we've got the angel of light. Let me read it to you and you just keep this in your mind. He says, uh, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. I want you to notice that. And I want you to notice the description of his head. Because that's the description you've got. Stands in complete contrast to the description of the first beast where he was the most ugly creature. I mean, he had seven heads, he had ten horns, and he had ten crowns, and he was revolting. He had names of blasphemy written all over those heads, and the head itself had received a, a, a ghastly wound that should have killed him, and that somehow or other it was healed, and there in all his ugliness and in all his completely twisted deformity, he rises up out of the sea, and you think, oh, we know that you are your evil, that's for sure. That's the one head over there. Here's the next head. Two horns like a lamb. Then he spake as a dragon. A great red dragon of chapter 12 who was so opposed to God and to the Christ being born and so persecutes the people of God and pursues them because they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 12. He exercises all the authority or power of the first beast in his presence. And he's causing the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast. You think, well, that's a bit of a surprise. He didn't look like that, did he? He uh, To worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And this is how he does it. does it. This is his work. This is how he does it. That's what he does. This is how he does it. He does great wonders or miracles so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That's pretty spectacular. He deceives them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do or authority or strength to do in the sight of the beast. So there's something supernatural about all this. There's something quasi-spiritual about all this. There's something that's not natural. Saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Or oh, they're working in cahoots, aren't they? He had power to give life to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should speak. That's spectacular. 
That's convincing. This is a power outside of humanity. <sighs> would look like the power of God. Cause it as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Oh. And he caused all both small and great and rich and poor and free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now here is something very important that probably confounds us over and over. Here is wisdom. Now remember the description of the first beast? And we got to the end of verse 8 and it was horrifying and you thought, woo. And then suddenly there was a verse 9 that said, if any man have ears, let him hear. And there was a word of wisdom. A word to give you understanding about that first beast. If you're faced with that ferocity, that roaring lion, understand something about him that will enable you to endure and to grasp the situation because it is really necessary that we get to understand how Satan works. You know, we said it's, you study your opponent, you know his moves so that you're ready when they come. Like you're going into the boxing ring and you're going to win the fight. Well, you'll spend a long time having a look at your opponent and watching all his moves and all his style and, so that you're ready for it when it comes, you know? You're ready for that swinging left hook that is, it's his trademark. And that's what's happening here. He's, uh, in the end of verse nine, in verse nine, it's saying, now just a minute, we want to tell you something. You must grasp it as believers, as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, as those that are running contrary to the style of the world in which, in the culture of the world in which you live. Understand he's got an end. Now he says exactly the same here in the second beast, who is the cohort of the first, who uh, they're working together in harmony, but he, he looks a lot different. He said, look, here is wisdom. This is what you'll need. This is what you will need to combat the modus operandi, which this second beast represents. You'll need wisdom. You will need understanding. The way you will get wisdom and understanding, discernment to see Satan at, at, at work, to see him when he works and to discern his activity, the way you'll get it is count the number of the beast. Yeah. Don't stop there. It is the number of a man. That's the point. That's the explanation. And his number is 600... Three score and six, all right? So if you find that Satan is working <coughs> the way in which the second beast represents, now you'll need to discern and understand or you'll be taken in. You'll think he's not as bad as the first beast, see? He's much better, much better proposition. But he said, if you will just look and count his number, you will discover that you will find the number of man, the stamp of man. All right? And that number is 666. Okay. We may get to it. I'd like to just give an overview of the whole section this morning. We'll see how we go because we've got a couple of weeks ahead of us anyway, which is very helpful. All right. The two beasts, the one's obvious, the one's fierce, the one's powerful. 
How are we going to interpret it? What's the me- Not interpret. We're not going to make this mean anything. We're just going to look at the picture and see that it says it for itself. That's the important thing. Don't play with Scripture and make it mean what you'd like it to mean. Don't play with prophecy and, you know, add your fantasy. Just read what the Bible says and the truth will come out for itself. Right? And your clue of this picture lies in the very first, very first verse. That's verse 11. This beast comes up out of the earth and he has two horns like a lamb. You look at this beast and you think, first impression. This is all right. This is rather nice. A lamb. Isn't that nice? You know, isn't that beautiful? We love the picture of a lamb. You read the book of Revelation and you will love the picture of the lamb. I mean, it's natural just you see a lamb and there's something attractive about it. But when you know the lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world and you've read Revelation and you've, you've seen the glory of the lamb sitting on the throne, you know you're amongst those that have been washed in the blood of the lamb and then you see this great vision, you know, and there's this picture and it's a lamb. Straight away you think, hmm, this is really quite nice. Certainly something better than the first one that I looked at. Huh? Something a little bit more attractive, shall we say. Fine. And then he opens his mouth and he speaks like a dragon. And then suddenly you realize what you see is not what you get. In other words, first look, appearances, very, very deceiving. Lesson one, don't just be satisfied with that cursory look. All that glitters is not gold. What you see is not always what you get. Because underneath this vision, this this first glance, there lies one that speaks like a dragon. From within him comes what he really is, the dragon, that is of chapter 12, who is the Satan himself, the great red dragon who raises up his emissaries, his representatives on earth to do his evil work, to thwart the people, the purposes of God and destroy the people of God. And he opens his mouth, he goes, oh, the same sound's coming out. That's what's happening here. And then worse than that, you go to verse 12 that we read and you find that he, he gets his power from the dragon, exactly the same place as the first beast got his power. And I tell you, satanic power is a fearful thing. You know, there's all sorts of choruses that are sung about dancing on the head of the devil and laughing at him because you've beaten him. Ha! The one that's doing the laughing is the devil. He's just waiting to get you. Never, never, never imagine or underestimate the strength the ability and the wiles and the techniques of the devil. He is, pardon me, out to get us and to bring us down. And there he is, he's empowered by Satan himself. That's what it is. He's got, he's part of the dragon's program. He's on the same page as the first beast. He seems to be very different from the first beast, but in actual fact, They are working in the same cause, the bringing in of evil and the overthrow of good. And what you've got here is something that looks good, but actually is fundamentally so evil. If you just look at it, you will be deceived. That's the point. 
One is destructive, ferocious, first beast. Here we have complete picture of the truth, of the activity of Satan in deception. Look, it's his, it's his modus operandi. It's one of his greatest weapons. It's one of his cleverest means of operation and the most successful. And I want to get, by the end of this, these three weeks, an understanding of how real deceit is. Deceit's a powerful thing. It gets you to the point where you really believe something that's not true and you actually act on something that's not true. You may actually find yourself defending something that's not true, but you've done it in, you might say out of all honesty, but the truth is you've been deceived and very often what's happened is you further the cause of evil or you are lured down the track of evil. And what will be destroyed is your witness in keeping the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's a big lesson because deception is the way Satan has worked so successfully in our Western world. We don't live in China where the ferocity of attack was violence, brutality, destruction, imprisonment. We don't live under Islam. Islam with its ruthless cruelty, its absolute destructive annihilation of everything that stands in its way and all that represents God, the true and living God and his Christ. No, we have lived in this little bubble. We're in a Christian society, inverted commas. We've all gone along so happily with, well, nearly everything that calls itself Christian and all the while Satan's been at work behind the scenes, slowly weaving his web like some trapdoor spider, leaving it wide open and it cannot be seen under such camouflage because by deception he's luring the simple within his grasp and reaching out and destroying them. That's what this is all about. And it's a, it's a fearful thing. It's been very successful. We'll see that as we go through in the Western world. And it's one of the most effective weapons that has been used in the church of God. One of the most effective. Deception. False shepherds. False prophets. False teachers. False Christ. We'll deal with something of that later. I want to give you the principles so that you yourself can discern, you see. You can have wisdom and you can see and you can get some understanding. Looking like a lamb, speaking like a dragon, with the same power, the same intention. They are working together, empowered by Satan himself. One intention, to bring in evil and to destroy what it's good. If you want a simple illustration and you're a bit of a historian, just remember the Second World War. You know, Hitler, roaring, fierce maniac, clear intentions of what he wants to do. And little Mr. Goebbels, you know, shuffling along behind. You know, he's only about five foot two, they said. I didn't realize how small he was. Five foot two. He was everything that Hitler wasn't, you know, the, the, the perfect Aran race. That's what was going to be exalted. And there's Mr. Goebbels, five foot two. Well, he doesn't look too smart, doesn't look too, and he had a limp as well. You know, he had a limp. And there they were, the Nazis are killing all these deformed people. They hate them. And so it goes on. But you know, he was the one who had the tongue. He was the one who could speak so well. He was the one who could raise up the image of the first beast. He was the one, you see, who could get people to follow that maniac 
and be lured into that brutality of destruction and the evil that that man wanted to bring on the world. There was no doubt. It was darkness that was sweeping over the world in those days. And steadily it's coming again. Steadily it's coming again. And it's true. We'll see that as we go. And you see, you had the two of them working together, so different apparently. Oh, well, Mr. Hitler, well, he's a madman. Look at the way he, he rants and raves and look what he does and he breaks his word. Mr. Goebbels, well, he's a nice little chap. I mean, he speaks so well. He's so convincing. He gives such great working together. Now, I'm not saying that Hitler and Goebbels are the total fulfillment of these verses in Revelation. I am saying that this is how Satan works throughout history, and the lessons of how he works are put to us. He will always work the same way, climaxing in the terrible things that ultimately lie ahead. So this is what we've got, the two of them working together to attack and destroy God's people and God's work. Signs and wonders, verses 13 to 15, is the particular method that singled out here, and this is quite significant, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It says here that, he can do these incredible things, fire from heaven, great miracles, and making the image of the beast talk, and there's, there's something spectacular about it, there's something spiritual about it, because it's all about worshipping, you know, bowing down, revering, making a god of. Uh... Now there's a warning here for us all, and you can work things out and work your way think, through things for yourself. Be very careful of signs and wonders. Just be careful. Just be careful of signs and wonders in the realm of the spiritual. Now, we have seen in the past 25 years an unprecedented rise in the Christian church of the use of the miraculous, the spectacular, the rising of individual men purported to have great ability and to be mighty, powerful, anointed representatives of God. And the proof that God has been at work is so often rested in the fact that there have been signs or wonders or miracles. Now, you must stand back, and as John warns us in his epistle, we must learn to try the spirits to see whether they be of God or not. I mean, can God do signs? Yes. Can he do wonders? Yes. Can he do miracles? Yes, yes. But remember, we're dealing now with an angel of light. We're dealing now with one who will purport or will present himself in the pretense of being exactly that, doing what is good and having God's power. And yet in actual fact, he's nothing like that whatsoever. Now he says, you try the spirits. You say, what do you mean, test the spirits, to see whether they be of God? Because he's clearly warning us that many of them are not going to be of God. You say, well, how would you go about doing that sort of thing? I mean, who am I to judge? I mean, doesn't it say, judge not, that you be not judged? Yeah, we won't go down that line. It also tells you don't cast your pearls before swine. And then the very next verse, and if you're going to not cast your pearls before swine, you better work out who the swine are and do some judging. There's a difference between condemning and writing and, you know, exalting yourself as some authority over other people to criticize them and in discerning good and evil, right and wrong. It's a big difference, okay? One is right, the second one. The other one's not. It's wrong. Now, the Lord Jesus actually makes it very clear how you actually know whether something is of God or not. Just, it's quite simple, you know. 
I'm sorry, I'm getting fed up with the arguments you have to go through with so many theologians, whereas Scripture means just what it says in its simplicity. And the Lord says, by their fruits you shall know them. In other words, what is the outcome of the thing that claimed to be of God? What is the outcome of the thing you thought was a movement or a work of God? What is the outcome of it? Well, by their fruits you shall know them. Ask yourself a simple question. If it's a work of God, it will produce godliness. It will produce holiness. It will produce righteousness. It will produce Christ-likeness. Now, a man raises himself up and wants adulation, Virtually worship? Is that what the Lord Jesus Christ did? You see? If the outcome is uncleanness, if the outcome is indulgence, if the outcome is pride, if the outcome is just me and self-fulfillment, stop a minute. By their fruits you shall know them. It's quite alarming, and I'm giving you principles to discern for yourself and to work things out as you go. I am not here writing people off. I am not here condemning individuals. I do not mean that. I am here to tell you what the scripture says, that when Satan gets to be an angel of light, he works through signs and wonders and miracles. You say, but you can't say that. I didn't say that. The Bible said it. You know, and I can't, I don't argue with it. You know, I just accept it because that's how you get wisdom, you see. That's how you learn to discern. What does it say? Now in Matthew chapter 7, The Lord Jesus goes so far as to say that there are some people who rely on signs and wonders and miracles for their salvation in the day to come. They actually rely on that, and it comes out to be false. In that chapter, he says there, there's some people who will say in the day of judgment, chapter 7 and verse 22, they're going to say, Lord, I mean, they're just finding themselves shut outside. The door shut. They're out of the kingdom. And they're crying out, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not in thy name cast out demons? And in your name we've done many, wonderful, many, miraculous work, works. They're calling on him. They're saying, look, this is, this is it. Signs and wonders and marvels. I will profess unto them, I never knew you. In other words, you and I never met. You and I have never met. Never. I never knew you. Now you depart from me, you that work iniquity. You have been, as it were, on the devil's team. Now, it's the same chapter where the Lord Jesus is talking, by their fruits you shall know them. If you just go back to verse 15, he's talking about false prophets, sheep's clothing, ravening wolves, all right? And then he says in verse 20, You know, how are you going to discern all these? Well, by their fruits you shall know them. After all, a good tree brings good fruit. A bad tree brings bad fruit. I go to a tree and I think, I don't know what kind of tree that is. It's growing nicely. Oh, there's some fruit on it. And I take it up. Oh, it's an orange. Well, it's an orange tree because it produces oranges. 
See, it's as simple as that to understand, fellow believer. The wayfaring man, it says, though he be a fool, he does not need to err therein. Now, you don't need to have great high intelligence and many fancy degrees and a a tremendous knowledge of debate and philosophy and people's thought. Just read God's word and by God's spirit, he will show you what it says and what it means. The truth is, by their fruits, you shall know them. And he says then, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. And here's the clue to what's true. This is the fruit, you see? It's the next verse. It's the next part. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. You see that? Now, something is of God, that person will be changed. And they will seek to do the will of the Father who is in heaven. They will seek to keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And from here on, their life will be all about turning from sin, doing what is right, and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And if he's a prophet, he won't be exalting himself. If he's a shepherd, he won't be thinking of himself. If he's just you and I, ordinary people, we'll be saying, for me to live, Christ, from here on. Sin, I don't touch it. Dirty, I don't touch it. Evil, I shun it. I run from it. I don't understand it. No, I don't have to find out about it. I just know it doesn't belong in my life. They do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Now you're getting some picture of what's going on. The clue is as you move on through the reading, the five, the signs and the wonders, the other clue that lies in those verses 14 and 15 is that they are all being used to promote man. All right? Now remember the number of a man? We'll come to that later. Six eggs, the number of a man. That's how you'll know. Whether it's of the devil, it'll have the number of a man. Now, these two are working together in cahoots under the dragon. But what's it all about? It's all about exalting a man, this first beast that's come out of the sea. It's a picture of a man. Now, that's important to grasp in that um, this particular section as we're reading it. So we've got spiritual wickedness, the use of, who uses the miraculous, driven by satanic power to exalt man. That's what you're dealing with in verses 13 through to 15. Verses 16 to 7, small and great, rich and poor, free and bond. Now, there's no difference. He's after everybody, everybody. Receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads to no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. That's pretty, that, that's ultimate control. That's pretty, that's, that's terrible, you know. You know, Satan and all his hosts and his emissaries, what he's out to do is to enslave man. He enslaved him once in sin. The Saviour came and broke the power of that sin. He enslaved him by death. And the Lord Jesus rose from the grave and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So now he works. It's as though he's had a deadly wound and he should be dead, but he's not dead at all. He's still doing it. He's after the same thing. He wants to enslave men. He wants to bind men totally under him. Totalitarian states. That's what it is. Control, control, control. Branding, binding, enslaving, 
and controlling. That's what he's out to do to the world, to every part of the world, to the rich and the poor, to the high, to the low. No one is out of his, uh, as it were, his aim and his desire. That's what we got here. And so you stop there and you go, golly, you know, I mean, <laughs> this all started out so nicely, didn't it? Really did. It started out with what? A lamb. That's what it started out with. It started out with a lamb. It ends up with something absolutely horrific, something horrible where mankind is completely enslaved right down to the very facts and essence of eating food in order to survive and having employment in order to earn what is necessary to buy the food so that they can survive. The whole thing has come in like a tightening of a noose, like the binding of a net and like the enslavement through a trap. We've got deception, Satan's greatest weapon. It all began so well and it suddenly is ending so badly as it has been clearly seen over the course of history when evil men rise up and they get their following and everybody cheers for them and wants them. And it's always been the same. I won't go through all the details or even give you a dozen examples which would be quite easy. And the same is at work today. The same is at work today. Well then, you say, this is terrible. Because you get trapped into it. I mean, the lamb thing's pretty good. I'm sorry, it's very, very effective. With a head like that versus the other looking head, it's pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, it's so strong, deception in the world is so strong that the Lord Jesus actually says... We'll touch it later. If it was possible, even the very elect would be deceived. I mean, this is no small thing. We're not just making up something we go, oh, that's easy to pick. No, it's not easy to pick. And this is where it comes in next. He says, you will need some wisdom. That's what it says. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding or some discernment, you know, get sufficient wisdom whereby you can actually count the number of the beast. You can actually recognize when it's the number of man, when it's the work of man, when it contains all that is about the exaltation and aggrandizement of sinful man. You will need understanding to do it, and you will need wisdom. Wisdom gives you understanding. A man of wisdom doesn't just have knowledge, he has discernment, he has understanding. He knows how to use the knowledge that he's got. That's the idea of wisdom. You know, you can know lots of things. You know, how many academics do you know that know so much they just leave you blown away? You know, you think this guy's a walking encyclopedia, but then when you ask him to do the practicalities of life, he doesn't know, he just blunders on. And the true academic wraps himself in a little back room and he produces books and ideas and theses and writes the most brilliant stuff, but he can't usually handle life very wisely. So often that's true. So he says, what you need to do is to have the wisdom and that will give you the ability to be able to use it and apply it to the situation that you find yourself in. So you're not deceived. That's the whole point. You are not deceived. Now let me just say this in passing. Wisdom is not something that's all tied up in how clever you are. Divine wisdom isn't exactly dependent, it's not dependent upon natural ability, natural education, right? 
natural genius. Please, let's understand this. Wisdom that we're talking about comes from above. Now, that's what James says. The wisdom that comes down from above. And it's the one thing, the one thing in Scripture which makes it, it sort of stands out above everything else. If you lack it, you can ask for it and you will be guaranteed to get it. We've sort of been taught, haven't we, in this present postmodern world that, you know, the Christian, if he lacks something, he can ask for it. If it's a brand new Mercedes, you just ask for it and then you go and get it. <laughs> it doesn't say that. There's nothing in the Bible about Mercedes Benzes. <laughs> All right. It's not the point. The point is this. You lack wisdom. He said you can ask. And there's a God who freely gives it to all. And you may be the most simple soul in the sense that in the world's estimation, you're what? You're just a mother without any education and a whole bunch of kids. And what would you know about life? I tell you what, there's been some wise mothers in this world, hasn't there? Hasn't there? Quietly in their faith and trusting God, they've pointed their children in the right direction. They've seen the evil coming into the home and they've got it in a flash and they're down on their knees. That's a woman with wisdom that's come down from above. That's what we need to cover today because it's that kind of faith and those kind of Christians that are going to keep the work of God alive and moving on. It's true. So number one, you're going to need wisdom. The discernment, the understanding that you actually will notice something more about this beast, not just, as it were, those the nice little head like a lamb. And he says, I want you to notice this. Get your understanding and start to notice he's got a number. It's the number of a man. It's six, six, six. If you like, that'll always be his trademark. The number, that's the number of a man. And if you want to know if a work is a work of God or if it's a work of Satan, if one who is moving is moving with the power of God, if what is happening is from the hand of God, or if it's really a subterfuge, an angel of light, a minister of righteousness, who's actually a minister of darkness, uh, uh, that which looks so good, you know, all that glitters is not gold, but it looks so much like gold. If you want to know the difference, he said, you go looking for the trademark. And the trademark will always be that in the thing itself, whether it's small or great, there will always be something of man. I'll explain this a bit further as I go, because I, this is fresh light to me when I was reading this. I never saw it so beautifully as such a help to myself. And if it's a help to me, I hope it'll be a help to you. It will always carry something of man. It will always result in the exaltation, the lifting up of man, sinful man. Now, it may be the lifting up of an actual person outside yourself, but it might be the lifting up of yourself. You see, if you hear the sermon that tells you how good you are, that gives you that sense of ability and belief in yourself and your goodness and your capabilities and all that God has made you, end of story, rest assured something's going wrong. Because it bears the mark of the exaltation of sinful man. I mean, you hear, you hear the truth of God ministered and you listen to ministry and it makes you feel, Phew. you know, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Well, that's the hand of God. You see, that's God at work. He's glorifying himself and he's reaching you and he wants to make you like himself. There's a big difference. Big difference. We'll say more later. 
I want to say it again and again. The hallmark will be it contains something of man, number one. Number two, it will be all about man, never about God. It will bring glory for man, never glory for God. This is the number of a man. You see, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, what we've actually seen here, what have we seen over and over? We've seen God at work. It's been wonderful to see those pictures. The lamb enthroned, sitting, reigning, ruling, worshipped, honoured, glorified, lifted up, no longer despised and rejected of men, but hallowed and worshipped and exalted in heaven. We've seen the redeemed standing washed in the blood of the Lamb. We're going to read more as we go through Revelation. Of the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Being beautiful. So we've seen God at work. We've beheld something as we've gone through the book of the wonderful works of God. Right. Have you ever noticed that there's a number associated with that? Always. We start in the beginning and we had what? The seven spirits of God before the throne. We had the seven stars in the hands of the Son of Man. We had the seven churches. We read about seven seals, seven trumpets. We're going to read about seven vials, seven thunders, seven, seven, seven. And you think, this number seven seems to be associated with the work of God, right? You know, I'm not making this up. I'm just telling you from the book. And if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, what do you find in Genesis chapter 1? Seven days. Seven magnificent days. Six of them where God worked. The seventh where he sat down and he rested and he enjoyed what he had made. He enjoyed creation. He enjoyed man. Creation enjoyed God and man enjoyed his creator. See, God's number is seven, it would seem, doesn't it? What's the point with this number being six? Well, you see, seven is something more than man could ever do. That's the point, number one. Number two, six is nearly there. You know, it looks pretty good. You think, yes, this is God for me. Hold it. Count again. Six is nearly there. Deception. You get the idea? Deceived. And you do it in your own life when you think God is, as it were, led you in a certain direction. If you really analyze it sometimes, because often you go down that road, it ends in disaster, and people actually blame the Lord for that. But if you sat back and was honest with yourself, half the time when you've gone in the wrong direction, there was a whole bit of you in the middle of the equation that that's what you wanted, really. That's what you liked, really. It appealed to you, really. And it all sort of, you made it fit into the plan. Get the idea? It was actually only got to number six, if I could put it that way, and it never got to number seven. That's a great lesson to learn. And it's also in relation to discerning the signs of the times and the evil that's around in this present day. And when it comes to God at work, as versus Satan at work, in the number six versus the number seven now versus the number six, only a work of God will, one, exalt God, two, glorify God, three, reveal God. This is very important. It will exalt, it will glorify, it will always reveal God. Number six, it's the number of a man is associated with man. 
It will always exalt man. It will always contain something of man. It is deception. It's nearly number seven. You might be excused for mistaking it because it looks so similar. Of course it does. That's what deception is all about. It's the whole point of it. It looks like it, but it is not the real thing. It's a bit like, you know, there's one, it's the trademark 666 of Satan and his work and the deception. But seven is the hallmark of God. I don't know if you know the difference between a trademark and a hallmark. The trademark, you can lift the thing up and stamped on the bottom, made by, right? Made by. And if you've got wisdom and you you just in prayer wait upon the Lord, he'll turn that silver goblet upside down and it'll have underneath it, made by the devil. Hey, what you see is not what you get. If I have silver, and I want to know if it's the genuine thing, right? How do I tell whether silver is true silver, sterling silver? That's worth money. I got a tea set at home, and I'll tell you what, it looks beautiful. You just walk into it and say, oh, wow, look at that for sterling silver. Woo, that's worth a packet. In actual fact, you know, <clears throat> I could say to you, pass it off, and you probably wouldn't know unless you have really understood your silver, if you were discerning in terms of silver. Because the bottom line is this, when you lift the bottom up, the name of the maker's on the bottom. When you lift up sterling silver, you'll find a hallmark stamped into it. The hallmark of the maker, a special little, might be just a funny little letter that's pushed into the silver. And I tell you, when God's at work, his handiwork is there all the time and there's nothing false about it. Nothing. As a matter of fact, that thing I've got was actually made to look like sterling silver. So I look at it and chuckle and enjoy it and it's beautiful, but it's not the real deal. Now that's where we're at in what we're learning today. We're learning something. The angel of light producing something that looks so right that it would be easy to think it is the real thing. But let's get some wisdom. Let's get some discernment. Let's learn to, in prayer, in reading the word of God, in waiting on the Lord, just to stand back and learn to count the number of what you're looking at and see whether... It's 666. Whether it exalts man, whether it fails to glorify God, whether it bears the hallmark of the sterling worth of silver, whether it bears the hallmarks of the eternal redemption of my soul, whether it makes much of my redeemer or of me, or of some other issue for the aggrandizement of man. Does it do that? Or is it clear and plain to be seen that this is a work of God? It bears the handiwork of God. It exalts God. It makes me exalt God. It glorifies his name. And I'm hearing of my own worthlessness. And you say, what a terrible negative thing. No, it makes me glorify the God of my salvation that he should ever have saved a sinner like me. This I'm looking at is a work of God. It exalts God and it glorifies God. And it puts God in his right place. And it causes us to worship him who liveth forever and forever. May the Lord bless us this morning as we've introduced this meditation on this section of scripture, deceit. The deceiver will continue, if the Lord will, next week. Let's pray.
our God and our Father. We turn, we've been reminded this morning of one of whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The great rock upon which we rest, an unchanging God in a changing world. We read of the enemy that's without. We read our God and Father of his masterly skill, of his evil intention, of the powerful works which he does do. We come in faith and trust For our faith is in the living God, the God of all creation, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of our redemption, the God who never changes. O God, we come to Thee. We bow in simple faith, put our hands into the divine hand, and we sing again all that I've needed. Your hand has provided, and we worship and give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.